turn to Psalm 62, verse 8. It's, a, it's really a verse to help us get moving uh, as we look at this question, how important is prayer? Uh, after we read Psalm 62, 8, I'll have you pull your hymnals back out and we'll begin in uh, question 98 of the Shorter Catechism. What is prayer? But let me read the Bible to you first, Psalm 62, uh, verse 8. Trust in the Lord at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you would, take your hymnal. We're going to turn to question 98 of the Shorter Catechism. Do a little... um, work through the catechism on prayer over the next few weeks since we've been praying for many to come uh it struck me that maybe we ought to and 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 by the way you know my family and i we're working on question 98 as we speak so it's on my mind (laughs) so um but let me read to you question 98 what is prayer and the answer is prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. So how important is prayer? Question 85 will help us to understand how important prayer is. That's the definition of prayer. Let's look back to question 85. So turn the page. How important is prayer? Question 85, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? Answer, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, God requireth of us repentance unto life, and God requires of us the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. Now, What does God require of us? He requires of us faith in Jesus Christ. He requires of us repentance unto life. And He requires of us this diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates the benefits of redemption to us. What are those? (laughs) See, this is a setup. Y'all know that the catechism is really wonderful because this is a question that sets us up for questions on faith, Repentance, and what are those outward means that we are to use? Well, go to question 88. So look down to question 88, next page. And so here we go. Um, What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? Answer, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So what you have there are what? Those outward and ordinary means by which you and I are to be diligent in them, the word, the sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So we could run back to Acts 2.42. We've studied on those Sunday afternoon sermons, and we understand that what's the first one? They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. There's the word. Now, we could, we could sneak one in. Maybe we could tell the, the guys that wrote the confession back 
back in the 1600s. Maybe they should shove fellowship in there because the next one is the fellowship. And then the next one is the, the breaking of the bread, which talks about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And then it talks about the prayers. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Did you notice the priority? The priority is the word. Then there's the sacraments. You can't understand the sacraments apart from the word. You have to have the word to explain to you so that when you walk up and you go and you see bread, you know that that means Jesus' body. Just like you look at red signs and that means stop. You see bread and you know that means Jesus' body because the word, the word's priority. Then second comes the sacraments. And then third comes prayer. But not to diminish anything here, the word is first, the sacraments are second. But let me tell you something. The word has two questions given to it, 89 and 90. The sacraments has seven, has, has seven questions given to, to them, 91 through 97. But when it comes to prayer, there's 10 questions. So how important is prayer? Now we see the word's priority. We understand sacraments are second, but there's 10 questions and answers given to prayer. So prayer is very important. There's a man named George Hendry who used a simple device to determine the seriousness with which systematic theologians have given uh, to prayer in their writings. What he did was he read and he wrote down all the times, he noted all the pages that these systematic theologians gave to the subject of prayer. Do you care to, to uh, guess on who wrote the most on prayer in their systematic theology? You want me to tell you? Calvin. Seventy. Seventy pages on prayer. They're, they're, they're valuable enough for me to say out loud to the men, we need to think about those 70 pages sometimes for Saturday. Seventy pages in 1559 given to prayer. And it's still one of the best discussions on prayer ever Written And so the institutes of the Christian religion for Calvin is all about a man coming before God in prayer, a woman coming before God and talking to God in prayer. Calvin has an enormous number of pages on prayer because it's important to Calvin, but also because Calvin knew that they were very important in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, we find people talking to God from Genesis to Revelation. In the book of Psalms, we find a man and his soul before God all the way through. In the New Testament, Jesus leads us by example and instruction. In the book of Acts, we see men repenting and then devoting themselves to, to the prayers. The apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul, I like to call him the apostle of Jesus Christ. If you go read his writings, have you ever noticed he's writing along and then he starts praying? Then he's riding along and he starts praising, doxologizing, if you will. He begins, to, he's just praying. He's in and out. In the book of Revelation, we end the whole here, this little part, with John, the beloved disciple, in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is sitting down in that normal position they would sit in those days. And he begins to share in chapter 6, instruction and prayer we call it the lord's prayer or the model prayer and then even pastor sumter last week he was preaching on luke 11 and he talked about this lord's prayer a, a, kind of a different take on how he it, it's not exactly the same 
But in verse 1 and 2, the disciples come to Jesus. They had seen him praying. And they said, Lord, would you teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray? And Jesus began to teach. This is we call, sometimes people call it the Sermon on the Plain. The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, both of those prayers are kingdom prayers. So here's the question for tonight. Who asked the question, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Who asked the question? When Adam and Eve fell, from the, fell in the garden, and they, they were separated from God by their sin. Their sin was imputed to them. It was guilt. They were guilty, and their sin would be conveyed to all their generations after them. It was a terrible event, and the devil perpetrated this event to uh, kill the human race. And it looked like he had won. And after all this happens, we can answer the question and say, no one is going to ask, Lord, would you teach us to pray? The scriptures paint a very bad, bleak situation. God has told Adam and Eve that the day they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. Well, they didn't physically die immediately, did they? We know that that takes place a little bit later. But spiritual death is like physical death. Physical death is when the soul and the body are separated. You know when a body has no soul in it because it's just lying there and you have to put that person in the ground. But the same thing's true about spiritual death. Spiritual life is here's Adam and Eve before the presence of God. Here is a man who speaks the words that he speaks and he's a prophet. He speaks the words of God. He glorifies God in everything he says. He praises God and worships God as a priest. And he's a king. He's going to rule over all that is underneath God. But when he sinned, he didn't physically die. But spiritually, instead of being in the presence of God and worshiping God and speaking the words of God and ruling in the, in, on the earth for God, he falls away from God. They knew they were naked. They felt ashamed of each other's presence. They hid themselves from God and each other. And they, this is the thing that most people, they have no peace inside. <laughs> there's, there's something wrong on the inside, not just between the God, God and the man and the woman and the man, but there's something wrong on the inside as well. And so these things are the truth. And we see in Genesis 3, 4, You shall surely not die is what the serpent said to Eve. For the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. They didn't physically die, but they spiritually immediately fell away from God. They were separated. And this is what is going on in our lives. Men and women no longer before God, but now away from God. And ultimately, there's a second death. There's a physical death. There's a spiritual death, and that spiritual death, if that person, if, that, if our soul is not made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, there is a second death where we will be separated from God forever. Is this found in other places of Scripture? We find the portrait of man in sin in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And most of you, most of you here tonight, I can say you probably know this passage. But let me read it to you. Let's think about this for just a few minutes. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you used to walk when you, were, when you conformed to the ways of this world and of the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All of us also lived among them 
at one time, fulfilling the cravings of our flesh and indulging its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. Man is dead in sin. This is exactly what we just said. Man is dead in sin. But it's worse than that. Man is enslaved to sin. Man is enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. That doesn't mean people are, are demon-possessed. It just means that Satan rules over this realm where men live in sin. And if you think to yourself, well, do I, I don't really live in sin. Well, just ask yourself, do you give yourself up to the desires of sin? Do you go and fulfill uh, sinful desires and thoughts? And so he ends this part of the passage saying that we are children of wrath even as the rest. In Christ, we can do what God wants us to do, but in sin we cannot. Romans 8 says, Those who are in the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are in the flesh, their mind is set on death, not, in, not on life. Their mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit itself to the law of God, is not even able to do so. The natural man, we know, he has not a mind to think on the things of God. I mean, Genesis 6 verse 5 says the man's imaginations, inclinations, and thoughts are always evil all the time. Romans 3, 10 through 18 Speak. Paul uses these words from the Psalms. These are devastating words about our condition in sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The venom of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery lie in their wake. And the way of peace they have not known. End. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a pitiful situation. Titus says this. Someone who's in Christ can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. But someone who's not in Christ cannot say no to sin. Someone who's not in, in Christ can cannot yield their members to do that which is pleasing to God. Under Satan, not in Christ. Under sin, not in righteousness. Not understanding, not seeking God. Uh, I think it was Spurgeon that says, evil gases flow out of their tongues. <laughs> what are those evil gases? Deceit and cursing and bitterness. Evil gases. Uh, we have no fear of God. This is our situation. No one... Ask this question, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And any time truth comes our way, what do we do with it? Shove it out of our conscious thoughts. That's called suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Any time the light comes on, oh, i got to run to the darkness. We want to get away from it as quickly as we can. We want to love ourselves. We want to encourage ourselves. We don't want to think about those bad things. We want to put positive mental attitude on all the time. And if we hear somebody flattening us, we run away from that person and we run to the person who will flatter us and tell us what we want to hear. But you know what? Even though no one will say, Lord, would you teach us to pray? God has a kingdom over which he rules. And since he has ordained 
that his son Jesus Christ not only inaugurates the kingdom but will consummate the kingdom because he has done all of that, God will do something and he's the one who's going to initiate prayer in our lives. He will initiate the question in our lives. God must do this to bring us into the kingdom. God initiated creation by the word of his mouth. And God holds everything he created by the word of his power. And God initiated redemption through Jesus Christ who came to live on this earth. And Jesus Christ and God applies that redemption by the power of his spirit. And he will bring about prayer in our lives. Or it won't happen. God comes to you and God begins a work in you. He begins the conversation and then we start talking back to him. He initiated the conversation with Abraham. In Ur the Chaldees, while he was an idolater, God called him out of his sin and God promised to bless him and bless the whole world through him. He says this in verse 7 of Genesis 12, The Lord appeared to Abram and he said, He spoke. And he said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so what does Abraham do? He goes through all of the land of, of promise, and he begins to pitch a tent, and he builds an altar, and then he calls on the name of the Lord. I love that. That's what Christians do. Wherever you go and live, um, and some of us probably have, you know, when we were in California, there were some of the families in that church, I don't think they had ever moved. And I was like going, man, I've moved how many times? <laughs> Five times in one year? <laughs> you know, we moved, we moved. But every time we moved, we pitched a tent and we built an altar and we called on the name of the Lord. Where, some, wherever God's people, where we started going to church. The same is true of Isaac, Genesis 26, 24, and 25. The Lord appeared to Isaac and spoke to him. I am, your, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar and there and called on the name of the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, there's all those folks listening and Peter's preaching the gospel. And what is he doing? He's preaching all these psalms. He's bringing them to bear. And they all cry out and say, Brothers, what shall we do? And he tells them to repent. And then what do we find them all doing? Devoting themselves to to prayers, to the prayers. There we have it. In Acts chapter 9, we studied this in our men's group. Had to put this in there. Who initiated this relationship with Saul of Tarsus? Jesus did. Jesus comes to this man. He's on his way to arrest all those people who follow those, you know, following this Christian, I mean, this man named Jesus, those followers of the way. He's going to arrest more people. And Jesus stops him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, Who are you, Lord? <laughs> well, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he tells him to get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And so they're leading by the hand all the way to a house on Straight Street. What's he doing while he's in that house? Y'all remember? He's praying. He's praying. God intervened, or Saul would have continued the rampage. God intervened through Jesus. Jesus speaks to him, and everything has changed. There's a conversation started now. And so there was this other conversation while he's over on Straight Street praying in Judas's house, Judas' house. <laughs> There's Ananias over here, and Ananias is having a little talk with God, and he's, God's saying, you need to go and talk to Saul. You need to tell him what I want you to tell him, and tell him to call on the name of the Lord. Well, I, are you sure about that? Because this guy kills Christians. 
Are you sure about that? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm sure about it because, and here's how he encourages him. He says, he's praying. Now, how many prayers do you think that Saul had made before this prayer, these, pray, these prayers? You think he had prayed before? If you go read your Gospels, what do, those, what do those Pharisees do? They pray on street corners. I'm sure he prayed on a street corner. And I'm sure he prayed down at the front of the temple with that other guy in Luke 18, right? Hey, Lord, I fast twice a, twice a week. I'm sure he's prayed a whole bunch of prayers. But these are the only pra- this is the first time he prayed and they got above his ears. See, now he's really praying. God intervened. God must initiate prayer in you and bring you into the kingdom. And so I ask you here, my Christian brothers, are you praying? Why are you praying? Well, you're only praying because God brought you into the kingdom. God speaks to us in this word. Sometimes I think to myself, does people think you're crazy to say that? But we believe when a minister reads the word and explains the word that God is speaking. God's speaking to us now. He's inviting us into a relationship with Him to talk back to Him. Prayers like a marker. We see Abram calling on the name of the Lord and Isaac calling on the name of the Lord. We see those men and women in Acts chapter 2 devoting themselves to prayer. We see Jacob and Isaac all calling on the name of the Lord. We see Saul sinful as he was, his life interrupted, and him praying and having a conversation with God. And it didn't stop. We know the wonderful gospel. And we know there's bad news and there's good news. We have to tell people the bad news. We have to tell people that they're sinners. We have to explain to people that they need, that, that they're in that in sin situation. They're in the flesh. We have to tell them about, sometimes maybe we might even read to them, Ephesians chapter 2 or Romans chapter 8 or Romans chapter 3 like we went through tonight. We have to explain to them. And then we, we tell them there's a wonderful truth, though, for all those people who have sinned against God. There's a Savior named Jesus. And he went to the cross, and he was, he was the one who died for the unjust so that we might know God. But even as true as all of that is, there's people I've told over and over, <laughs> you can't be saved unless you ask for it. You with me? You got to ask for it. You can't have it unless you ask for it. Now, in the inquirers class back in California, all these inquirers class I went to, I always taught the kids and taught every person. You know, you're only saved by what the Jesus did. You're only saved by what Jesus did. You're not going to be saved by any works that you do. And if you, if God is initiating a relationship with you. If you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, it's by faith. Calvin says that faith is given a mouth. What's the mouth? It's prayer. I love, one of the things we learned that I've enjoyed, and I was talking to Evan about this this past Tuesday, if God gives you faith, it won't sit on the shelf. And so faith not sitting on the shelf at this point in our lives is using your mouth and praying to God, right? It's praying. It's using this mouth of ours to ask for salvation. The thief on the cross had faith, but how do we know he had faith? You know how we know? Because he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. It's not absolutely necessary for your salvation that you read the Bible. Understand that most people who have ever lived were illiterate and unable to read. It's not absolutely necessary for you to hear gospel preaching in a church. It's not absolutely necessary that you be baptized or receive the Lord's Supper. This thief on the cross probably had none of those. But it is absolutely necessary for you to hear the Word of God, for the Spirit of God to create faith in you, and it's absolutely necessary when that faith is in you for you to ask for Jesus to save you. You have to ask for it. It's yours for the asking. Is God's Spirit working in you? How many times I've had men... I, it grieves me. This really grieves me. I've told my kids, I've told my kids this, I'll tell y'all this. You know, I have men come in my office and I tell them these truths and they say, would you pray for me? And I go, yeah, I'll pray for you. I'll get the whole church to pray for you. But you have to ask Jesus to save you yourself. Right? I'll pray for you. But you have to ask Jesus to save you. There's some things you have to do for yourself. When, when Lori and I first got married, <laughs> laying in the bed, looking in that face, and she says, would you go to the bathroom for me? And I said, well, I'll do anything in the world for you. I'll go to the bathroom for you, but it won't do you any good. Right? We just laughed our heads off. And there's some things you and I have to do for ourselves. We have to eat for ourselves. We have to drink for ourselves. We have to sleep for ourselves. We have to learn the alphabet for ourselves. And we have to go to the restroom for ourselves. You have to do them for yourselves or they won't get done. Will you pray and ask Jesus to save you? Will you pray? Let's go beyond that. Will you pray and keep asking for God to do the things you want Him to do? There's some things, folks, right now we've been praying for four weeks. And we got another week we're praying about this next weekend. What's God going to do? I don't know. But let's pray and see how, as that song we've been singing says, how He will repay. Let's pray for these folks. We don't know how he's going to work, but he says he will repay if we will pray. J.C. Ryle says this, To be prayerless is to be without God. To be prayerless is to be without Christ. To be prayerless is to be without grace. To be prayerless is to be without hope and without heaven. It is to be on the road to hell. God's speaking to us today. God speaks to us in his word God speaks to us in His Word and by His Spirit. And He teaches us that He forgives us of our sins. He teaches us there's justification before Him. He teaches us that we're adopted into the family of God. He teaches us all these wonderful truths about sanctification. But you can't have any of it without asking. You have to ask. So look to this God who created the world by the Word of His power. And look to this God who holds all the world together by his word and reveals himself to you through Jesus. God tells us that Jesus is like buried treasure. I love, this is another Calvin thing. I'm telling y'all, I'm just eating Calvin up right now. And this is a Calvin thing. He says, you know, in the word of God, when it's preached to you, that the gospel has been 
uh, uncovered in your presence. It's sort of like a treasure that's been uncovered. And if you want it, he says, you have to get the shovel of prayer out. And you have to go dig it out. And you take it home with you. And you appropriate it. And doesn't that sound like the Lord's Supper? <laughs> and doesn't that sound like so much other things in our lives? How are we going to get these things? Well, we need to go get that shovel out. And we need to keep digging Jesus out with prayer. To be prayerless is to be outside of Christ. But if you hear the word of God and you say, Lord, teach me to pray, it's because God initiated it. And God's bringing you to know him. And you begin to call on his name. You move from one place to the next. You'll pitch your tent one place or another. And then you begin to build an altar. And then you begin to pray everywhere you go on this pilgrimage. Well, let's pray now. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sweet truth that comes out of it. We thank you that in the preaching of your word, even tonight, Jesus is opened up in front of us, uncovered. And we pray that all of us would take out our shovels called prayer and just keep digging Jesus up and keep appropriating Jesus in our lives and keep fixing our hearts and our minds on Jesus and keep thinking on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that we might set our minds on the things of God. Lord, that we might think on those things that are pure and holy and good and true, what is excellent and what is right. Lord, make us to be men and women who love you. Make us to be men and women who take everything we learned, as we talked about this morning, all our theology, and help us to turn it into doxology and prayer. Help us to use these things to know you better and to walk with you in these days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.